morning. Today's reading is from the Word of God and comes from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, and also from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 13. Please follow along in your pew Bibles on the screen behind me or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, Galatians chapter 5, 22 to 23, and Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 13. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. And at that time, children are invited to join Kids Rock through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things there is no law. And from Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need. For I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. And I have learned the secret of being content in every and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. My name is Bryn. I'm one of the pastors here. I am so glad to be worshiping with you this morning. It is warm in here, so I'm glad that you came. Hope you're staying cool in your seats. Um, so we want to take a minute like we do before we start every sermon and just invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us with whatever is on our minds and hearts that we came in with. So I just invite you to silently in your seats kind of reflect on where you are, what you brought into the room today, and invite God to speak to you in those places. And I'll open us with a word of prayer after a minute. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us your spirit to cultivate fruit in us. And we pray this morning as we continue to explore what that looks like and how it works, we pray that you would help us to reflect, to rest, and to remain in you, to build our entire lives on the foundation of your love so that we might bear fruit that is seen all over the world and that others would come to know you and worship you and be changed and challenged by your spirit as well. We love you. We offer this time to you as an act of our worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, so I'm gonna start by putting up a couple of pictures on the screen. And as I put them up, I want you to pay attention to what's happening in your body as you look at the pictures, okay? So, picture one. All right, we got another one. <laughs> one more. Right? I know, they're so cute. Okay, so we can all agree that these, that these animals are objectively cute, right? We can agree on that. We can all agree that these baby animals are completely and totally adorable. I'm like looking at looks, the looks on your faces and I can tell that you think that they're adorable too. So how many of you, when you looked at these pictures, you wanted to squeeze the animals? Some of you were lying. <laughs> I know that you wanted to squeeze them. How many of you, when you look at something that you think is so cute, you can't, you can't help it but like your jaw clenches up, your muscles get all tight. How many of you, when you are looking at your own puppy or your own kitten or your own baby, you just wanna overwhelm them with your love, right? Well, studies show that about 60% of us have this kind of reaction when we see things that we think are really, really adorable. We get totally overwhelmed, but like with a little hint of aggression, now, personally, I am a squeezer. I, when I see a cute thing, I want to squeeze it. But like, why? Why do I have that response? Why when I see my kittens and they're just like minding their own business and they're in a basket and they clearly don't want anything to do with me, why do I still wanna go over and like squeeze their little tummies and rub my face all over their face? Why do I do that? Why do people, when they see a really cute baby, they say, oh, they're so cute, I wanna munch them. Have you ever heard anyone say this? Or like, oh, they're chubby little legs, I could just eat them. Like we say that all the time and it's weird, right? That's really, do they really wanna eat the baby? No, I hope not. <laughs> but why do people say that? Why are we so squeezy and munchy about cute things? Well, there were a couple of researchers that decided that they wanted to tackle that question. Their names were Rebecca Dyer and Oriana Aragon. They were gonna investigate that question. So they invited a whole bunch of people into a room and they gave them a bunch of bubble wrap as they came in and they said, we're gonna show you a bunch of pictures and we want you to kind of like have your embodied response on that bubble wrap. And they just said that all over the hallway you could hear this like pop, 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 pop. And some people got so excited, they were looking at these pictures of baby animals that they just like started wringing out the bubble wrap because they were so overwhelmed. But then the researchers decided that they were, or they were kind of continuing to research and they drew another connection. Humans don't just display this kind of behavior when we see cute things. I mean, think about an athlete or a group of athletes when they have just won the big game, right? They scream, they shout, they tackle each other, they get a little bit aggressive. When people win the lottery or when people see the one that they love walking down the aisle or when people get so overwhelmed by the beauty of creation, they cry. And they cry the same tears that they cry at funerals. Why? Well, it turns out that these kinds of responses, we cry when we're feeling happy, or we get a little aggressive when we see something cute, it happens because our brains have adapted to temper our joy. If our brains didn't hold us back a little bit, we could quite possibly, and this is a phrasing from the research, we could be so incapacitated by cuteness. We could be so overwhelmed by joy that we stop being able to function. I love the idea of being so incapacitated by cuteness that I can't function. So getting aggressive 
or weepy or angry when we feel good is our body's way of keeping our emotions in balance. It's like our brains are saying, whoa, 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 pull that back, tone that down, don't get too overwhelmed. Our brains have literally learned to temper joy. Now, I'm not gonna stand up here and argue that this is a bad thing. It seems that we need this kind of technique for survival in this life, but still, can you imagine what it could feel like to be able to fully lean into and experience true joy? To let it overtake us? To be so overwhelmed by joy that we just can't contain ourselves? Can you imagine? Can you imagine how good that could feel? Well, what if, what if that is the invitation that we have in eternity? What if the promise that we have in Christ is this kind of pure, unadulterated, unfiltered, overwhelming, unending joy? And what if, what if by God's spirit alive and at work in us, what if we can get a taste, a hint, an idea of that kind of joy now? Well, I think that would be good news. So we're in the second week of our summer sermon series called Organic, Fruit of the Spirit. And last week, Pastor Ethan opened our series and he talked about this promise that we have in Scripture that when we hold on to Christ, when we let the Spirit cultivate fruit in us, we get these, these fruits, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So if we were to think about the Christian life as a garden, then the Spirit is the gardener. The Spirit is the one who is doing the gardening in us. The Spirit would be the one cultivating and fertilizing and pruning. That's the Spirit's job. And our job is to hold on. It's to hold on to the vine and let God do the work in us. And when we rest, when we can rest in the work of the Spirit, then we bear fruit. The Christian life is as easy and as hard as that. Last week, Ethan also shared about how God cultivates love in us. And this morning, we are going to take a look at another fruit of the Spirit, joy. And we're also going to look at some of the things that get in the way of joy. Because even in those moments when joy seems so elusive, so hard to feel, even when everything else seems to get in the way of joy, joy is at the heart of God's promises for us. All throughout the Bible... God commands the, the people to come together for feast days just to remember and celebrate and reflect on who God is and God's own goodness. God's people were supposed to be people of joy. We are supposed to be people of joy. From the very beginning of the story, God takes delight in creation and delight in work and delight in rest and delight in us and calls it good, 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 very good. From day one, God's story is teeming with joy. In my own life, I have gotten a picture of what this kind of unbridled joy can look like in the way that my dad lives. Some of my earliest memories were as a little girl and I would toddle into our family's living room and my dad would see me and he'd get this look in his eye and he'd, he'd get a kind of a twinkle in his eye and he'd put down whatever he was doing and he'd, he'd get up and he would invite me to dance with him. It continued as I got older. My dad always seemed to be dancing everywhere that we went. Whenever he saw me, his eyes would light up, and he'd put down what he was doing, and he'd get up, and he would invite me to dance. It didn't take too many years of doing this before we had a separate dance for everything. We would dance when we were putting breakfast on the table. We would dance when we were cleaning it up. We had a different dance for when he would pick me up from school or when I made a new friend. We had dances that we would do in public right in the middle of the cereal aisle in the grocery store. 
My dad never needs a reason to invite me to dance. He just lives his life dancing. For me, that is a picture of the joy of God. It's a picture of a God who looks at creation and gets a look in his eye, and God starts to dance right in the middle of the cereal aisle, if for no other reason than because creation is good, and God is good, and that is reason enough. Now, lots of you are parents, and I've heard some parents tell me that it's just amazing to them how kids just seem to innately know how to dance. When little babies see something they love, or when they see something that gets them excited, they communicate that excitement with their whole bodies, with their arms and their legs and the unbridled joy on their faces. A baby can play the same game over and over and over again and not get tired of laughing. There was a, a writer named G.K. Chesterton who wrote about 100 years ago, and he wrote that the joy that you see in the heart and face of a child is a fraction of the joy that you see in the heart of God. He said it like this. He said, because children have a bounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until they are nearly dead. <laughs> For grown-up people, some of you, that's knowing laughter. <laughs> For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but God has never got tired of making them. It may be that God has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, but our Father is younger than we. For we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. Now, tragically, at some point, all that physical, unbridled excitement just gets socialized out of us. At some point, we learn that it's not appropriate to express our delight with all of our limbs. Most of us stop laughing and dancing the way that we once did. The average child laughs 300 times a day. But the average adult, we only laugh 20 times a day. We grow too old for those things. After a while, the worries of the world start to weigh us down. We get addicted to our own busyness or our own importance or our own distractions. We get overcome by fear. We learn to hold back, don't get too overwhelmed, temper that joy. When I became a teenager, I stopped wanting to dance in the cereal aisles with my dad. What would people think of us? What if boys were there? What if Leonardo DiCaprio was there? <laughs> Plus, I, I had things to do, so let's just get our groceries and get on with it. So after a while, I would start rolling my eyes, turn down the dancing. At some point, before I'd realized what was happening, I'd stopped expressing my joy with all of my limbs like I did when I was a kid. I'd grown old. But my dad, who still invites me to dance in the cereal aisles, is apparently younger than I am. My dad's kind of joy in those moments of dancing, it's the kind of joy at the heart of God. Because at the core of God's being, at the core of who God is, is joy. And it's the kind of joy that the Apostle Paul described in the book of Philippians, the passage that Dan read for us a few minutes ago. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. 
Now, for some of us, rejoicing in the Lord always is a little easier said than done. So let's take a closer look at what Paul says, because this, this passage actually has some very practical guidelines for how this works in our lives and what it means. Now, first, the, the Bible's understanding of joy was very different from our kind of cultural, commonly cultural understanding of joy. There is a difference, biblically speaking, between joy and happiness, but we often conflate the two and use those two interchangeably. But in Scripture, these two are very different, distinct ideas. So when you think about happiness, and you even just think about the word happiness, it's based on what is happening, as the name implies. Happiness is a because of kind of feeling. It would describe the freedom, the the good fortune, good health, lots of money would bring you. Happiness is tethered to our life's circumstances. You got a new car, you're happy. You get promoted, you're happy. Me as a teenager thinking about Leonardo DiCaprio, I'm happy. But any of those things could change with the tide in an instant. And because the Bible likes to focus on eternal things, the Bible doesn't actually have a lot to say about happiness. But it does talk a lot about joy. The word Paul uses in this verse, rejoice in the Lord, is Cairo. Cairo, rejoice. And that word comes from the word for gift. This word is about being grateful for a gift. This word is about giving thanks. This word comes from an awareness of a gift in whatever circumstances, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of life, the gift of breath, of reconciliation, just of getting up in the morning. This word is not about something that has happened to you. And it's not just for people who everything has gone well for. This word joy, it's something that can happen deep within you regardless of what's happening around you. All throughout this letter, to the Philippians, Paul writes about this kind of joy and delight and gratitude. But what's most interesting to me is not that Paul writes about joy, it's where Paul writes about it. Because Paul, Paul is writing this letter from prison. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, that Paul ended up in prison and ended up composing some of the most powerful letters the world has ever seen from prison. And he didn't wait to get out of prison to talk about and share about who God was in his life and to take delight in what God had done for him. When you think about it, Paul had dedicated his entire life to traveling and to spreading the good news about Jesus all throughout the world. It was his entire life's purpose to tell the story of God to everyone that he possibly could. So for someone like that, someone who has dedicated their entire life to to traveling and spreading the good news of the gospel, well, getting put in prison would kind of get in the way of that. And I imagine if I were Paul, I might feel trapped, I might feel angry, I might question that God was even with me at all. But instead of doing that, instead of turning all of that into bitterness, Paul says, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. In the midst of the worst kind of circumstances, even on death row, Paul doesn't give up. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't complain or despair. He just says, okay then, then I'll tell the guards about Jesus. I'll do what I love in here. Paul learned to discern that God was doing something even in this, even in prison, even as he's facing death, even as everything that he had pictured for the rest of his life had been thwarted. Because at the end of it all, At the end of his life, something had happened so deeply within Paul's heart, something that was so profound, 
that he could have unspeakable, unswerving, undefeatable joy no matter what. It was the kind of joy that was not rooted in Paul's circumstances or his good fortune or his health or wealth or the promise of a long life ahead. Paul's joy was simply rooted in the gospel, in the fact that the Lord had come. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. It's one of the reasons why Paul says a few verses later, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And we often take that text to mean, I can pass this exam through Christ who gives me strength. Or I can win this game through Christ who gives me strength. But performing or weightlifting or winning are not what Paul had in mind here. Paul was saying, we can do hard things like celebrating who God is, the good news of Jesus, even in the midst of life's painful circumstances through Christ who gives us strength. Because of Christ, Paul could dance in the cereal aisles, not because everything was going well for him, not because everything was coming up Paul. For Paul, joy was possible because the Lord was with him always. In the next verse, Paul holds out his hand to the Philippians and invites them to dance with him. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So I want to take a minute and unpack that, because this is really the how, how this works. For Paul, in those moments of anxiety, in those moments of fear or worry or despair, the best thing we can do is to begin by naming those things in prayer. Pray about everything. Tell God what we need. We might be in deep darkness when fear takes hold of us, but we can pray to the God who loves us like crazy and who will be with us in the midst of it all. But Paul doesn't stop with prayer. That's not all it says. It says, as we pray, we should also thank God for what God has done because joy and gratitude go hand in hand. This gratitude is how joy gets cultivated in us and giving thanks will lead us to joy we can't have one without the other gratitude changes us it changes us into people who can experience joy in whatever we're facing whether that's prison or loss or monotony or busyness or fear it recenters us on what's important on god's gifts and god's grace and god's goodness on what's to come, when we might be tempted to focus on what could be. Paul said it like this, after we've prayed and given thanks, then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul teaches us that finding joy is not about changing our circumstances, but about changing our character and how we think of those circumstances right in the midst of them. But how often How often do we get this backwards? How often do we think, oh, well, I'll be grateful when I have something to be grateful about. I'll be grateful when someone, anyone, God, my parents, my boss, my spouse, my coworkers, my child, changes my circumstances. And we end up hitching our joy wagon to the if-onlys and the as-soon-as-is and the because-ofs. And subconsciously or not, we wait. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, too, this idea of tomorrow discipleship. We're waiting for life to begin. We're waiting for joy to begin. We're waiting for something to change in our circumstances. We're waiting to be the the person we thought we would become. We're waiting for the life that we thought we would have. 
We're waiting for another version of ourselves to arrive, the college version, or the married version, or the parent version, or the grandparent version, or the thin version, or the successful version, or the recovered version. Then, then maybe we'll be the joyful version. But that's not how God works. In this life, God is more interested in changing our character than in changing our circumstances. Now, sometimes God does change our circumstances. Sometimes there is a miraculous recovery. Sometimes we get a phone call out of the blue that changes everything. God does that sometimes, but not always. And God hasn't promised to in this life. Sometimes the truest test of joy is its ability to exist even within the most tragic circumstances. I like how theologian Karl Barth defined joy. He called it the defiant nevertheless. The defiant nevertheless. We may be experiencing the worst of all possible situations. We may be facing death or tragedy or sorrow or fear, but joy, joy is the defiant nevertheless that says, I will trust in something beyond what's happening in my life right now. Yes, I may have lost the one that I love. Nevertheless, I know that God has shown me ultimate love in the midst of this grief, so I'll rejoice. Yes, I may be facing relational pain or difficulty or complications. Nevertheless, I know that God can break down walls and bring healing and forgiveness, so I'll rejoice. Yes, I may still be struggling with that same old sin, that same old shame, that same old thought pattern that I've been working through for years. Nevertheless, I know that Christ is making me new, so I will rejoice. Yes, says Paul, I may be in prison. Nevertheless, the Lord has come, and so I'll rejoice. I will say it again, rejoice. Joy is the defiant nevertheless. It's the nevertheless in the midst of prison, in the midst of disease, in the midst of everything crumbling down around us. Joy, joy is the dance in the cereal aisle when there isn't a lot in our lives to dance about. It's the gratitude we express if for no other reason than that Christ has come and will come again. Now, for lots of us, myself included, feeling joy in some of those circumstances is easier said than done. And just as an aside, some of us struggle to feel joy because of very real external or internal circumstances. Some of us struggle with clinical depression, which is a, a medical condition that puts a rain cloud over any feeling of natural joy we might have otherwise been able to experience. And some of us have gone to church in those seasons, or we've confided in another Christian in those seasons, only to be told that maybe we don't have enough faith. Like, chin up, cheer up, be happy, you're a Christian. I was told that when I struggled with depression. And that can be a really damaging and unhelpful message that only adds to our pain. So if you are struggling, know that you are not alone. And I don't want you to hear me say that you just need to choose joy this morning. That is not the message for you today. Clinical depression, clinical anxiety, they often require professional support, just like lots of other kinds of medical conditions. And it is okay and maybe even vital to get help from the medical and mental health community that is trained to walk with you in this. So if you don't know where to start, please come talk to me or one of the other pastors. We would love to help you with some next steps and support you in what you are going through. But no matter where we are on our journey, we can't just decide joy. We can't force it. And when we're feeling pain, when life seems to be falling apart, we can't just will ourselves into a joyful posture. But there is an underlying promise 
that even in those moments when joy feels like just out of reach, we can remind ourselves that this life, this life is not the end of the story. We have deeper promises that we can remind ourselves of, even in those dark seasons, which is why Paul doesn't just say, hey, have joy, you guys. He goes on to say, for I have learned. I have learned. And then he says it again. Here is the secret. I have learned. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance. Finding joy is a gift of the gospel, but retaining joy in the midst of any circumstance when happiness seems so far off, that's a practice. It's a reshaping of our brains. And how do you learn things? You learn things by practicing them, by training for them, by doing them again and again and again until we get it. Now, in college, I took a, a ballroom dancing class, and as I was learning, I had to think about every single little step, every single little move. And just when we thought we would have it, the instructor would be like, okay, repeat. And we would repeat over and over and over again until we got it. At first, learning to dance took time and energy and work and a lot of intentionality. But after a while, I could do those steps without having to think about them every time. The steps just became part of my brain and my muscle memory. Practicing joy is a lot like that. It takes one little step at a time, one little moment of gratitude at a time until we just know how to dance, until joy has become embedded into who we are in our muscle memory. Repeat, repeat, repeat. It sounds so simple, right? But it takes so much practice. And it means that in those moments when we are feeling most vulnerable, when we're feeling most afraid, when we're feeling like we might lose everything that we love to some great tragedy, that instead of using that as a warning of something to be afraid of, we can use that as an opportunity to turn to joy and to gratitude for what God has given us. It means that we can use that as an opportunity to give thanks for what God has done instead of getting taken over by worry or by fear. Thank you, God, that I'm breathing this morning. Repeat. Thank you, God, for this bed that keeps me out of the cold. Repeat. Thank you, God, that we have pineapple during soul food today. Repeat. Thank you, God, for Connie, who set that up. Repeat. Thank you, God, that I can walk my kids to the beach this morning. Repeat. Thank you, God, that I'm able to get a college degree. Repeat. Thank you, God, for this job that earns me a paycheck. Repeat. Thank you, God, for this relationship, even when it takes work. Repeat. God will not get tired of hearing our gratitude. And when we repeat and repeat and repeat again and again and again, then eventually those ordinary small moments of gratitude will add up until we don't have to think about it anymore. We're just dancing. I mentioned in the beginning that the fruit of the Spirit is the Spirit's job in us. That's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit and not the fruit of Jean or the fruit of Jess. The work is God's job. Our job is just to hold on to the vine, and that's true. But holding on to the vine does mean the constant daily choice to stay close to the God who is doing the work in us. Joy is the gift that we receive when we truly understand what Christ has done for us, but joy remains in our lives when we stay close to that gift, when we put it into practice day by day by day. And gratitude is one way to do that. Gratitude is one way that we stay holding on to the vine. And what happens when we allow ourselves to be grateful in our day-to-day, -day, ordinary, cereal aisle lives is that we actually do build up the resilience and the hope that will sustain us in those harder moments. 
Eventually, we'll feel, go from feeling joy in just the happy moments to feeling joy in the ordinary moments, too. And eventually, eventually, over time, we'll learn to feel joy even in the hard moments. When we make that defiant, nevertheless, choice, when we accept God's invitation to dance right in the middle of whatever else is going on, the promise is that we will be changed into our best and most joyful selves, into the people that God imagined that we would be from the start. People who see the laughter and dancing of God when anyone else might just see cereal aisles. Now, if you look at our world, you know it is so much easier and so much more common to be miserable and to just complain about the way that, that life is. But when we can live every day like it's a celebration, when we can live intentionally and with gratitude, when we decide to learn to dance instead of sitting this one out, we will reflect the heart of God who entered the world as good news of great joy, who, when he began his public ministry, he proclaimed a day of jubilee had arrived, when people who were poor would receive good news, and people who were blind would receive sight, and people who were oppressed would be set free, whose first miracle was turning water into wine just so the party could go on, who, before he left the world, he gathered all his closest friends together and he said, I have told you these things so that you may be filled with joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. And then, this is really interesting to me, then one night, on the night that Christ was betrayed, he took some bread and he gave thanks. He gave thanks. And then he took some wine and he gave thanks again. On the night when Jesus would face the most painful circumstances imaginable, the night when his closest friends would desert and betray him? The night before he would die a painful death? Can it get any worse than that? He gave thanks. In the midst of it all, he offered gratitude, thanksgiving, even as he's about to be broken and crushed and wounded. And then Jesus went to the cross and was buried in a tomb. Nevertheless, on the third day, God said to the stone, roll away. And God said to Jesus, come out of that tomb. And Jesus came out of the tomb. And now every day, every day, we can have joy. No matter what else is happening, no matter what else is happening in our circumstances, we can have joy because Jesus got up and walked out of an empty tomb, which means that we can too. If for no other reason than that, we can live joyful, defiant, nevertheless lives, if for no other reason than that we can dance in the cereal aisles and in our living rooms and in the middle of the worst circumstances, repeat, 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 until that day, until that day when Christ comes back, when God will be with us and we will be God's people. And the promise is that God will wipe every tear from our eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain, just joy. In those days, we will dance the dance that we have been practicing and we'll never get tired of it. And God will say, repeat, and we'll repeat and repeat and repeat. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your invitation through your word to join you in the dance, to learn what it looks like in this life to experience eternity, and to feel deep within our souls that joy that you promise us that reflects who you are. We pray for those 
who this morning are struggling to feel joy, whether that's because of an external circumstance, because of clinical depression or anxiety or something else. And we pray that you would meet them right in the midst of those circumstances. We pray that you would teach them things to feel grateful for even in the midst of them, that that would cultivate this fruit in them. We pray that you would help us all to release our grip on the things of this world that are pulling us down, that are causing fear and worry, and that instead we would trust you and your promises, and that over time you would teach us the muscle memory of gratitude and joy, and that that would emanate out of who we are, who this community is, onto the rest of the world. We love you. Amen. Amen.